Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Ouellette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundations. And like Judd, I served at the National Security Council. I also served at the U.S. State Department and at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Benin, and we are joined by Matthias Honkpe, Political Governance Program Manager at Open Society Initiative for West Africa, OSIWA, which is in our Open Society Foundation's family. Nicole, do you want to give us an elevator brief about U.S. policy towards Benin? The first resident U.S. ambassador to Benin, then known as Dahomey, was appointed in 1961, a year after independence. He told the State Department that the country was, quote, basically a French problem, and what happened there, quote, did not make a difference to U.S. national security interests. In the 1960s, Dahomey suffered from persistent political instability and coups, musical chairs, as one former U.S. ambassador explained. When the military wasn't in control, there was a rotating president between three leaders, each representing a region. U.S. interests were limited. There were few oil companies prospecting for commercial fines, and the Peace Corps was active, all of which paled in comparison to France's investments and presence. Dahomey's port, however, did play an important humanitarian operations role, first in response to the Biafra civil war in neighboring Nigeria, and later during the drought in the Sahel in the 1970s. In 1972, there was another coup. Mateu Karakou, an army major, took over. He renamed the country Benin in 1974. Karakou's regime was Marxist-Leninist, and relations with the United States took a turn for the worst. By 1977, the ambassador was downgraded to a permanent charge d'affaires, and the Reagan administration wanted to close down the embassy entirely. Slow relationships warmed again, in part because of the growing Beninese fatigue with communism and U.S. resolve to remain engaged. In 1983, the United States appointed a full ambassador again. In 1990, Karakou agreed to allow a sovereign national conference and eventually an election, which resulted in his defeat. Karakou stepped down and Benin became a democratic darling. Seeking to uphold Benin as a symbol of the new wave of democratization sweeping sub-Saharan Africa, the United States invited Karakou's successor, President Soglo, to Washington to meet with President Clinton. Benin received its first MCC compact in 2006, and President Bush made the first trip ever by a U.S. president to the country in 2008. Benin's status as a democracy has been badly damaged in recent years. Current President Patrice Talon defeated the preferred successor of his ally, turned bitter enemy, former President Bonnie Yayi, in a free, fair, and credible election in 2016. Talon proceeded to roll back Benin's democratic gains. He sentenced another rival to 20 years in prison and banned a third from contesting in elections for five years. Legislative elections in 2020 were so egregious that the U.S. Embassy substantially scaled back its observer mission and judged the process to be, quote, neither fully competitive nor inclusive, adding that it did not reflect the Benin that we know. This was followed by a presidential election in April 2021, where Talon won by 86% of the vote, mainly because he passed legislation to prevent most of the opposition from running against him. So with that, Judd, you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure? 
I think one of the failures is that we waited too long to talk about some of the problems in Benin that now we see so visibly under President Talon. So Boniayi, a leader who the United States lauded, as Nicole mentioned, met with President Bush, MCC programming. He had a serious fallout with Talon during the presidency. He was accused of trying to poison Boniayi and Talon went in exile. And then Yayi entertained a third term. There were these protests over his intentions, but we didn't say that much. And so now we're in a situation where Talon has come into power and has done many of the same things, but at a much higher magnitude, sentencing principal rivals to prison in absentia, barring candidates, sending the military to encircle Yayi's home during legislative elections. I think the lesson here is that even if you have a relationship with a leader and you see the progress that has been made under his or her tenure, and then you start seeing some backsliding, you have to say things because otherwise you create these new norms or at least the expectation that the international community won't say anything. And I think that is one of the contributing factors that has got us to where we are today in Benin. But Mateus, what is your thinking on what the Biden strategy towards Benin should be? I would say like three things. The first one is, you know, this quote that Nicole cited at the beginning of of this uh, conversation about the first U.S. ambassador to Benin saying that the country is basically a French problem. When we look at the U.S. today and the way uh, representations of U.S. behaves in, in Benin, we still see a bit of that. Like the U.S., when something happens in the country, the U.S. comes like later, maybe after France and after maybe EU. So we would like to see that the U.S. now becomes, quote-unquote, more independent in the way they help confront the problems and challenges that our country is facing. That is the first thing. The second that I think they should, they should continue doing what they have been doing recently, like working to support Benin in its priorities like health, electricity, the port, the justice system, etc. But, and this is my third suggestion, they need to come back to working or supporting works on democracy, human rights, and rule of law. You know, like 15 to 20 years back, USAID, for instance, had a whole unit on governance and democracy in Benin. But later on, this unit was closed. And when you look at the, the US interventions in Benin today, 90% of the budget is on health. And you see a very tiny amount of money on human rights, and these are our awareness raising activities toward youth and so on. So I think given the democratic regression that we are observing in the country since like five to six years, it is good that we see the US supporting initiatives in favor of democracy, human rights, and rule of law. I think that's such a good point, and particularly when it comes to the French, and we've talked about this in other Francophone countries, that yes, France is an important ally of the U.S., but maybe we don't see eye to eye on some issues in Africa. Maybe we have a different way of doing things, and we don't have to be in the back seat every single time for the, the reasons that you mentioned. But Nicole, how do we make it happen? If you were running the table at the NSC, what would you do to sort of implement this new strategy? So Benin is really a great example of why it's so important to avoid um, favoritism around, quote, big men in Africa. We hear this a lot. Policymakers talk about it a lot, but then often proceed to absolutely pick favorites. 
the real challenge there is that human behavior is um, unpredictable and human beings are imperfect. And as we know, power can corrupt. So when we've done this in the past, it's really created just all manner of problems all over the world. The antidote to that is I have learned from Michelle Gavin, who I worked for at the NSC when she was senior director for Africa, time and again is strengthening independent institutions. When there are open doors for democracy support, it really is key that we lean in there. That's what holds democracies together. Why did the State Department survive the Trump administration and the efforts to hollow out the foreign and civil service? Because there were enough foreign service and civil service officers who stayed, who held the line, who remained um, as impartial as they could so that there was something to rebuild on the other side. So that's just as important as any other country in any other democracy as it is here. So when you take that and extrapolate it to the interagency, what we're talking about is really providing enough funds from Congress and within USAID and to some degree other agencies to ensure that in addition to the really significant and really life-saving investments we make in health, that the same is going to those undergirding institutions of democracy, the civil service that can support any democratic progress and help it become institutionalized. Doing that as much as any other priority. That's something, once again, we know how to do. And it's really just creating the space for USAID to do this. It's a little bit harrowing to me how many times on this podcast we talk about what is simply a matter, well, it's not quite this simple, but is at least partially a matter of rebuilding democratic governance funding that comes from Congress to USAID and making that funding as flexible as possible. Matthias, do you have one big idea or a crazy idea to share with our listeners? But I have like three ideas again that I want to share. The first one, and maybe counterintuitively, will be, for instance, for us, for Biden administration to do all it takes to reduce the feelings that we are having today. We living outside of the U.S. that democracy is facing challenges, is not working properly in the U.S. This is damaging to the work that we do. I mean, we who are supporting democracy and, and rule of law in Africa. So by just fighting and continue the effort to improve uh, democracy in, in the U.S., I think that will be helpful for Africa. The second idea that I have is, you know, maybe it is time that we have now few basics and fundamental principles and values relating to democracy, human rights, and rule of law that everybody will fight for. Because we it hurts our countries and the effort that we are putting on the ground when we feel this double standard, when you see how established and old democracies react to what is happening in our countries. I'm not talking specifically about the US, but you look at France, for instance, who on the one hand will explain and justify third term in Cote d'Ivoire while condemning it in, in Guinea. Or you see the same friends supporting military coup in Chad while condemning, condemning it in Mali, for instance. So this type of double standard hurts people who are supporting democracy in Africa. So we need a like few standards and, and values on which everybody should agree that everybody will fight against when we see it developing or happening in our countries. Maybe I heard that uh, 
Biden administration is uh, working toward a world democracy summit. Maybe one of the output of this summit may be, for instance, agreeing on this standard that everybody will support and fight for. And the last one, maybe it will be good for the administration to come back to Benin again with supporting works on democracy, human rights, and rule of law. Yeah, I really hope, uh, particularly this point about the Democracy Summit, which is going to happen in early December, virtually, unfortunately, that there will be representatives of Benin civil society and a push, as you said, towards some global standards. But for the last question, I want to ask you, is there someone from Benin, politics, arts, sports, academia, you can pick, that really we should know because of their important contributions to Benoit society. It can be a historical figure, but you know, someone who is really so critical to, to Benin that probably doesn't get enough attention in the United States. I will give two, <laughs> and you will select one. I will start with, with Angelique Kijo. Angelique Kijo is a singer, female singer from Benin, and she's like three-time uh, Grammy Award winner, she's like UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador, and she's passionate about campaigning for girls' education and so on. I know in Benin and in some other countries in West Africa, she's uh, developing programs to do civic education for uneducated, I mean, girls that are out of school. So this is something really original. And I think this is somebody that you consider one of the prominent figures from Benin. The second person that I wanted to talk about is the Archbishop Isidore de Souza. She passed away like a few years ago, but he was the person who shared the National Conference of Benin in 1990. So for me, we should remember somebody like that, not only for the contribution that he brought to a peaceful transition from military authoritarian regime to democracy in Benin, but also because today, we do not have anybody like him when the country is facing like political and social tensions and conflict and instability. We have nobody like him. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.